0: for another episode of that 90s baseball pod i am your host brandon warren and you can find me on twitter at brandon underscore w-a-r-n-e i am joined as i am every single week by former baltimore orioles reliever and a few other teams as well greg olson who you can find on twitter at g-r-e-g-g-o-l-s-o-n 30 how are we doing we're doing good how about yourself good yeah can't complain uh, awfully beautiful here in the Twin Cities, and Twins are playing a little better. So, all the ball that we're watching right now here at Target Field has been uh, has been pretty good. You have had some uh, some pretty fun baseball experiences here over the last few days too. uh You were telling me off the air. Maybe you want to fill in the listeners a little bit.
1: Well, I um, have been doing some ESPN Little League for the past four years, other than last year's COVID. Year and uh, had been working in uh, San Bernardino with Trey Bender, which was a lot of fun. Do uh, 14 games in four days in the 105 degree heat and calling the games and watching the Northwest and the West regionals. And uh, this past year, I got, uh, or this past couple of weeks ago, I got bumped up and moved to the Southeast regional and was watching Georgia, Florida, Tennessee duke it out. And the last two games were on, on live on ESPN. So that was a lot of fun uh, to get off of ESPN Plus, where somebody has to really work to find me. Mm-hmm. ESPN's a lot better. And then on Thursday night, I got the uh, got the call to do the Field of Dreams game in Dyersville, Iowa. And so got to watch the uh, Yankees give up a uh, late lead, watch the White Sox give up a late lead, then the Yankees gave up a late lead, and- That was the end of the game with a Tim Anderson two-run home run, but amazing setting, uh, a lot of fun, you know, fun game to call, a lot of topics to, you know, discuss, so it was an easy three and a half hours on the radio.
0: How how did you feel about, first of all, the movie Field of Dreams, and then secondly, the game? Because I thought it was a pretty cool idea, even though obviously they weren't playing on the field from the movie, but... The movie gets kind of I think unfairly maligned by people now who I'm not really sure what they expect. Baseball has never really been that good for a movie subject because it's it's a game that's not really appreciated in a way that uh, a movie can really encapsulate at least in my opinion. but I think the movie's a good movie um, but you know it's it's gotten dragged through the coals a little bit on Twitter here the last few years
1: I't really I have not uh, I haven't paid that much attention i don't. I don't understand why they would. It's a, uh, you know, obviously fictional story. Yeah. And, you know, if we build it, he, he will come and, you know, just about, I guess a father son relationship and what it looks like. And then the, the backdrop is you know, baseball over the years and what it's looked like. I don't, you know, I don't pretend to sit there and review movies and what they really mean and everything else, but it seemed like it was pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward, you know, father-son tale of this and baseball of the uh, the sideline. I loved it. I really did. I thought it was a great movie. I got it. I have a really good relationship with my father. I grew up, you know, always playing catch and playing baseball. And I've I've done the same thing with my kids. And so the movie really resonates with me. And Kevin Costner's, uh, um, I feel like has worked hard to uh, do his due diligence, you know, uh, about the game of baseball, you know, about, uh, you know, Bull Durham came out my rookie year or maybe the year before field of dreams came out my rookie year. And then he proceeded to, you know, I, I really enjoyed the movie for the love of the game and uh, trying to think of what, uh, what other piece that he did, but Costner was around a little bit in Baltimore he and the the Ripkins were friends, and so he was around working out, taking batting practice, hanging out, as was uh, Tom Selleck, I guess, getting ready to uh, make his movie over in Japan. Was I it was Mr. Three Thousand, but
0: Mr. Baseball
1: Mr. Baseball, very good. Yeah. So uh, got to see him, and you know he appreciated the game, and and uh, I feel like his movies are respectful. Bull Durham's a rock solid give a a brief glimpse of the minor leagues to people and um i gotta be honest probably the best best reenactment of you know major league baseball on the inside of it is is uh for the love of the game you know just the day-to-day what it looks like obviously you know he's not going to pull the team bus over in boston to take a girl to new york Uh, that's not real realistic, but you know, for the most part, it it was, it was solid and the dugout scenes and everything else. It was pretty solid.
0: Yeah. People are weird about baseball too. I think it's the, the whole baseball is like church. Many attend, but few understand. And you can't always appeal to those few because you have to have broad appeal if you're going to make a mainstream movie. And so that's how you end up with angels in the outfield and little big league, both of which, excuse me, came to Fruition in a time period that we're going to be covering today when I was in my formative years as a youth, but you as a big leaguer probably didn't take all that seriously. So, um, I
1: (laughs) tell, I I mean, it's hard to take, you know, little big leaguer and, and, uh, what was the other one, rookie of the year? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just, just fun. You know, you know, some of the guys that are in it, you get some cameos from guys and, and uh, that all makes it fun. it doesn't make it realistic. It's just, you know, it's family friendly, you know, angels in the outfield. It's a decent watch. Not bad. You know, Tony is functional as, as a, a baseball player. So wasn't, I'm, I, I don't get insulted with baseball movies. I don't sit there and overanalyze them either. Right and uh, I'm going to have to just go on Twitter and see what everybody's chiming on Field of Dreams for, because I'd be curious.
0: Yeah, Uh, or maybe you'll be better for having not done it. Uh, Last thing about about Field of Dreams before we hit the sponsors and then get into today's subject, with your dad, did you have a catch or did you play catch? Because that is also one of the big debates on Twitter, and for me, it's kind of like if you have a soda or if you have a pop or in, I guess, the South, a Coke. It it doesn't matter to me. I don't care because it's regional dialectics, but that's a big, big thing. So many people say nobody has ever said it's have a catch, but I think that stems from maybe uh, Long Island or, or somewhere in New York. But, again, it doesn't really matter to me. What did you guys call it? Because we called it play catch.
1: Oh, yeah, it was always play catch, but it just seemed so, uh, I don't know, I hate to use this word, but romantic, to have a catch, you mm-hmm. know, just uh, – it's not the traditional English language and there wasn't uh there wasn't ever a time that I said let's go have a catch to my dad or my son's but I just I don't know, it sounds better. I don't know why.
0: Like proper English, like uh like the uh, old yeah. English. Old English, like the old English D from Detroit Tigers. It's it's the old fancy way of saying it.
1: That's exactly it. Yep.
0: <laughs> So let's touch on our sponsors here, Hinterland Coffee, HinterlandMN.com, 10% off a monthly subscription to get your coffee delivered to you from a friend of mine in Maple Grove, Minnesota. Humility Chains on Etsy. Just look up Etsy.com shop slash Humility Chains. They have 21 different chains and bracelets. Royce Lewis's mom, Cindy, makes them. Royce Lewis is the Twins' top position player prospect. Depending on who you consult, some people like Austin Martin more, but that's neither here nor there. And then Three Star Sports Cards is in Little Canada and Bloomington and online at three starsportscards.com. Sports cards, very big at this time, and I don't see any end in sight, which is kind of cool. If you're listening to our podcast on iTunes, please feel free to give us a five-star review and leave a little note. You don't have to say anything particular because all it needs is you to say something. You can tell us your favorite thing to put on ballpark hot dogs for all I care, but the only way that that comment – Registers is if you leave a comment and then we get your five star review, and every month one of those, one of those five star reviews will be selected stars. for a Greg Olson autographed baseball. So um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna do some fun giveaways. We're gonna do some fun stuff with Patreon as well, which I'll get to in just a second. But again, too if you're not listening on iTunes, you can find us on Spotify, Libsyn, Google Play, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. Again, five star reviews on iTunes are very very helpful. You can also check out our Patreon. We have three, five, ten, and twenty five dollar tiers. Still thinking about some of the rewards or whatever that will come with that incentives. Um, I was supposed to get the prototype of our that 90s baseball pod hat, which I sent you a text of in my hands this weekend, but um, some wires got crossed. And so that did not get into my hands, and I will have it next weekend. But you saw the hat. I think it's going to be a a real hit with uh, listeners if they can get their hands on one, don't you think? Oh, I, I liked it. I thought it was a good look and uh good looking at. Yeah, and you know, I've I haven't seen you on any of these ESPN Little League World Series broadcasts. We were at this place called the Sunshine Factory over the weekend and they were showing some of the broadcasters so their uh their home setups. So I assume you've been on the screen, but I, I I don't suppose you've been able to wear that Access Twins hat on the air. That's probably not gonna pass muster.
1: No, you know what? I get <laughs> I, do. I did four games last week for the Southeast regional and probably had a total of five minutes of my face being on the air. So it's not about me. It's more about the kids and this, they flash to my thing. And my, I think my wife, my wife put a picture of my little setup on Instagram or something where yeah. had me calling the uh, Field the dreams game from the side and, this that and everything else set up, so it's, it was it was a it was a cool setup. It was just mm-hmm. you know overtaking the whole room with technology.
0: And we we've been talking about setting up a segment for listener questions every episode. We're still working on the name of that segment. You know, ask the righty. I, I don't know what we'll do, but we have a sponsor. So at the end of the show, and Greg, I might need you to remind me because. For whatever reason, we get to the end of the show, and I get way too excited and forget to ask you questions. Maybe it's because I've been asking you questions for an hour to that point already, but uh, we do have a sponsor, and we've got some questions about the 1994-95 MLB strike that we will dive into. So without any further ado, though, we are, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, four days past as we're recording the anniversary of the 1994 stoppage so i'm i'm pulling it up here and i want to say it was august 12th was the last games played um before we dive into it too far what what kind of emotions are stoked in you or what do you remember from that period i mean it was nine eight nine ten months something like that nine hundred and some games canceled money lost on all sides Goodwill lost on many sides. W- what do you come back to when you think about that period in your career, which, um, yeah. which, um, you know, was a it was a unique period of your career. You were kind of in transition for what the second act was going to be.
1: Yeah, it was. Um, well, it was shocking, and anybody that's been part of a union will know that you you, you kind of stand and you're fighting for not just yourself, but you're fighting for the future of, you know, and the future players and the future of the game. And you're trying to make decisions not based necessarily just on now. So you run that through. And I was in the middle of my career at this point, but you're looking at, you know, the, the guys in the minor leagues and the, and the guys at the end of the career and everybody uh, was unified in sacrificing you know, what was about to happen for the good of, of staying away from basically, it, and it came down to this, was it, staying away from the salary cap. Mm-hmm. And so everybody was unified, and I'm sure that, you know, there are, were arguments inside the clubhouse of, you know, every team of guys that that didn't see the long-term effect of a salary cap and what it would do. Etc. Cetera, et cetera, So I'm sure that there were quarrels and arguments, but this wasn't the 87 football strike where, you know, five or six of the main players crossed and ended up breaking the strike themselves. Yeah. So we, you know, I, I was proud that we stayed unified. It was, just, it was a sad state for baseball all, all the way around. And, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of memories. There's a lot of thoughts. That just uh, it was sad. It really was sad. Mm-hmm. But you know, I was again, like I said, proud that you know, proud of the fact that we stayed unified, and and that was that's why we're probably still are the strongest union around.
0: So, you guys play your games on August 11th, and I mean, is it kind of a what now scenario? I mean, if you play a regular season and you're not going to the postseason. That last game has some finality to it. It's see you next spring. It's I'm about to be a free agent, and that could be a good or a bad thing. There, there's finality to it, though. There's a season to these things because of the time of year, the feel of the air, um, all that. When it's August yeah. and you're not used to going home, how, do you, are you guys all look at each other like, well, what now? We just go home? We stick around for – a little bit here in, in your case, Atlanta, or in other cases, you would have been, you know, Baltimore, whatever. What, what was that vibe like walking off the field that last day and then being like, okay, well, what's next?
1: Uh, it really wasn't uh, a finale. It wasn't you're walking off and saying goodbye and I won't see these guys again for until spring training. It was, all right, surely everything's going to get resolved.
0: Yeah.
1: And so, um, I spent, I spent the rest of the time, you know, the rest of the time, at least until probably when did Sealy call it middle of September? I think he called the whole thing. And so I, I, I stayed in Atlanta, you know, we, we kept our house in Baltimore throughout my career. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. was renting a condo or something down in Atlanta. And I stayed down there. My wife stayed there. And I went about my business of, of really trying to get my mechanics fixed And so I kind of looked at it like, uh, I don't know a little, a little break to, to, you know, come drive down to Auburn and work with my pitching coach down here, Hal Baird and get myself fixed. And I was, you know, driving down here quite a bit. And that was my thought. And the comical thing was I ended up, I did a baseball clinic with Danny Hall in, uh, Ohio. And I think he was at Miami of Ohio. Now he's the head coach at Georgia tech and, and, uh, and I, you know, called him up. and I was like, "Hey, I'm in Atlanta. You know, you got a catcher that I can I can throw to every once in a while." And it ended up being Jason Veritek. Oh wow. So, <laughs> yeah. So I'm i throwing pens to Jason Veritek over the uh, over the strike. But it wasn't. It, nobody walked out of there. And and the Atlanta Braves were in Denver, playing. Um, you know, I guess the last game at Mile High, wasn't it?
0: 94. Uh, yeah, I think I think Coors did Coors open in '95 or '96? I'm gonna take a look. I want to say it's '95, and I think you're right. Coors Field. I think April 26, 1995. So yeah, you guys started about a month late. Played 144 games that yeah. season, so that would have been the last game at Mile High, which uh, <laughs> kind of a quirky venue for baseball.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I can I can add that to my stadiums closed down. I didn't know I had that one in my uh.
0: Yeah, you don't you don't in my close book. down bars, you close down stadiums, right? Yeah, or both.
1: exactly. So I got uh, got Memorial Stadium in Baltimore.
0: Wow.
1: Um, and then uh, we got Mile High. I haven't thought about it too much of, of stadiums closed down, but so we closed down Mile High and we're hearing rumors that the Cincinnati Reds team playing just left the Reds somewhere. And I don't recall where they were playing, but as of it was August 11th I thought and you know season over august 12th so we were flying we were on a plane back to atlanta and we heard that the reds had gotten left whatever city that they were playing
0: in wait so was they you know the players shot had... thing yeah oh jeez.
1: yeah so, well so this is you know i think we had we had a day game so we we're hearing this so kind of looking around going you know what are we doing? And, and the Braves being first class, you know, flew us home and you know, the lack of finality in the thought process, everybody just left their, their baseball gear. And, um, you know, you did what you did. You grabbed your suitcase and threw it in the car or the parking lot, or you rode home with your wife or whatever. And then you went back to the house and then the next day, you know, season's over with for a little while, but it was like all, all my baseball gear was, you know, stuck in Fulton County stadium. Mm -hmm. So it took me a little while to find a way to have somebody at least open up a door so I could run in grab my, grab my stuff and gear so I could work out. But that was, that was the way it was. It was just, you know, you get on a flight, you go home. And like I said, the Reds got left wherever they were playing so so you have all these things
0: that actually happened. I don't remember that. So I was was only eight.
1: Yeah, you were eight. So, (laughs) you know, I had a question for you. I had a question. So we can go down my path for quite a while. Um, But, you you know, there's there's well, there's not a whole lot of memories on. You know, you didn't think it was going to be final. So you kept waiting for the season to start and season to start. And I was trying to get myself fixed so I could be, you know, playoff relevant for the, the Braves. Right. And. I was, you know, I, I, I've gotten. It, it was a lot more immediate in '95, '96. The fans, you know, still didn't come back. But what was what was the impression from your side to being a baseball fan at eight years
0: old? Well, I always say I picked the worst possible time to become a Twins fan because they won the World Series in '91, and then in '92 they, uh, Eric Fox, homered and basically ended their season. I think in July because then the A's picked up steam and won the division by, like, six games. So for me, I started watching the Twins in 1993, which, uh, you know, that's pretty rough. It was the first Dave Winfield year, but it was beginning of end for Kirby Puckett's career, the beginning of end for – of the end for uh, Kent Herbeck, who we'll talk about in a little bit later. Um, So for me – it was more about just disrupting my routine at night as a little kid watching the first uh, six innings of the game before my parents sent me to bed and then finding out in the morning what had happened on SportsCenter. So for me, it was more just like not understanding why they were stopping because the, the money part of it to me didn't matter. I didn't know anything about it. And even, even still, we weren't in that information area yet where we knew what players made or, or what teams were paying these guys and, and that sort of thing. So for me as an 8-year-old, it was mostly just, okay, well, what about the World Series? You know, last year's, the 93 World Series had been such a good World Series with, uh, you know, Mitch Williams giving up the home run to Joe Carter and all that, and so I thought baseball was in a pretty good place before, but now this uh, this frontline thing that I watched that uh, is on YouTube, people can watch, um, you know, the unrest started at the beginning of that season, but I think there were whispers about it before, and... Yeah, so so that stuff I didn't really know about and it's been fascinating to watch as a retrospective. As a kid it was just like now what? But my loyalty was right there again on April uh twenty sixth or whatever it was when when everything kinda picked up where it had left off. Um, you know, it was clear that the the wounds were still fresh, the feelings were still sore, but it was baseball and so I was happy to be back, but I can understand why people with a little more broad view of the world were slow to come back if they ever did.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I think it took all the, the 98, uh, home run race with Sosa and McGuire till we really saw the attendance come back. Yep. Um, yep. you know, I did a little bit of homework on my side and didn't realize that, uh, the Rockies were averaging 57,000 people. A game. Wow. And we're on pace to break the record that they had set the year before.
0: Almost five and, million, uh, four and a half million fans. Wow.
1: Yeah, it was four, 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 eight, something like that, and, yep. and they were on pace to break that in '94, and they still ended up with over three million in, you know, um, shortened season. So there's a lot of things that was kind of just, you know, I had to refresh my memory on everything. I still get. I will still get people that will bring up the fact that uh, the, the expos got screwed. There's a, it was a conspiracy to keep the expos from going to the playoffs and winning the World Series, and that was why we went on strike. And um, interesting conspiracy. Yeah, I'd probably feel better if you were walking around with uh, pinfoil caps on. Well, but yeah. Well, I mean, come on. So <laughs> every, every team, every team's going to quit playing we're gonna go on strike and just to keep i think the jeffrey Lurie expos from winning the world series which yeah, you know once you get your playoffs, it's still not. yeah i mean it's, come on that's, so that's um nonsense. yeah there was just a bunch of interesting uh you know aspects and and i was curious because you get people that not so much now that it's uh Twenty-seven years later, but you still get people that you know hold a little bit of a grudge and didn't understand, and I don't blame them. But yeah. I was uh, just curious your viewpoint from an eight-year-old that just lost the rest of his baseball season.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it was still my formative years, and so I mean, it it wasn't great, but it you know sometimes absence makes the heart grow fonder, and watching the replacement players do what they did and. <laughs> how hilarious it was um, made me, made me just get a better appreciation for what you guys do so or did at the time. Um, so yeah, one thing that players talked about last year in 2020 was how weird it was to be at home at that time of year. Then um, then not being used to it for, so for them though, it was the beginning of the season last year and guys like Taylor Rogers were home in Littleton, Colorado in April for the first time in, 10 years or nelson cruz was in the dr for the first time in 20 years like since 1998 or whatever in april and so for you obviously you didn't go home home because that was that would have been baltimore and it would have been a little different but still yeah not playing baseball at that time of season that's kind of reserved for when you're retired and you know maybe either wishing you were still out there or just trying to find purpose for your uh your days afterwards as you're kind of trying to fill those hours so that had to be kind of odd
1: it was, it was, you know, it was similar to retiring when you're walking around at three o'clock in the afternoon on a normal summer day trying to figure out what you forgot to do today. And it usually ends up being, Oh yeah, it's batting practice time. Yep. Um, so little things like that. But I I mean, for me, it really was, you know, okay, I'm going to use this time and I don't know how long this time's going to be because we weren't getting, you know, from Don Fear, uh, head of the union, we weren't getting, you know, it's over, it's done, there's no negotiations. But we were getting, you know, we're still not back to the table. And so you go, well, maybe, you know, they get back to the table in a week, get something settled. There was always hope, at least, you know, from my 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 side. I was maybe I wasn't getting the getting the straight from the uh, union reps mouths but um there was always hope on my side that we would come back and play and do it that season and have the world series and all would be right in the world but you know like i said on september 14th or september 15th something like that and bud selig shut it down and i think a lot of you know a lot of the problem was that we didn't have a neutral we didn't have a neutral commissioner at that time you know right right. And and that that's some of the issue that i think uh exacerbated the situation.
0: Well, and if you ask some people, that's always going to be an issue because the commissioner is appointed by the owners. And so it kind of creates a weird balance, but um, we can talk about that more here later in the, in the program. Um, so it was the eighth stoppage in MLB history, the fourth in season one, the, the primary difference, for the primary me difference me. was um, in 81, It was in uh, middle of the season in 85, it was very, very brief, I want to say just a couple days. But uh, this one, this one was obviously kind of blew a hole in two seasons. Um, oh, and the 90 lockout. There was a brief lockout in 90 that I didn't even know about. Um, it just it, it, To me, it, it's not surprising that this caused such an issue in terms of uh, fans coming back, but you, you still maintain that It wasn't until Seelig pulled the plug in mid-September that you did completely lost hope that that you guys could come back to the table, figure something out, and at least finish the season?
1: Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that that was the way I felt. Like, it it was, you know, it was a lot like last year where you're just looking at the whole COVID thing going, okay, it'll be a week. It'll be two weeks, you know, and then all of a sudden, nothing's changing, but you know, just put it in the perspective of last year, which is so recent everybody's memory, how long did you actually think that the, the, the COVID and the whole shutdown was going to last? And, and I would have right. said, you know, all right, two, two weeks. And, you know, as they say, flatten the curve. And it was the same thing for me. It was like, okay, week, two weeks, we'll get this thing settled. And we'll be back on the field.
0: Do you, Do you think it was ever on the table to – have some sort of provisional agreement and then revisit it in the off season and just finish off the season, even if it was say like a month missed, it up again on uh, you know the last uh, um, like mid September, get a couple weeks in and then go to the playoffs, or was that just never on the table?
1: If it was on the table, I didn't know about it. I think yeah. um, I think yeah. the the main thing, the most important thing, was that all trust had been completely and utterly shattered between the two. Mm-hmm. So okay. to sit there and say, yeah, you know what? We trust them to do this. And then we sign this till the end of the year. They make most of their money in the playoffs. So now we kind of lose our bargaining chip. Yeah. And so yeah. there, there was, uh, I think all, the, all, all trust had been lost and, and on both sides. They didn't trust us. We didn't trust them. They quit paying into the pension on August 5th, 6th, 7th, something like that. And that was always, you know, that was part of the previous um, negotiations. So once they did that, it was kind of like, all right, they're playing hardball. We've got to, you know, stick to our guns when we say that we're walking out on August 11th, and that's when we're doing it. And, um, yeah, any sort of rational thought and let's just table this and get to it in the off season. We, you know, we didn't trust them to do it, and they didn't trust us to do it either.
0: Uh, on what basis could the, uh, the owners cry poor in this sense? I mean, you know, obviously Sealy was their liaison, and so he's going to act on their behalf. But um, it just seems to be arguing in bad faith to me. And so I just – I don't – you know, you got the collusion from a few years before, which um, I suppose wouldn't have affected you as a free agent, of course, but it would have been happening at or around the time your career was just getting going. Um, I'm just confused how owners got to this point. I mean, were they in financial issues, dire financial straits, or was it kind of a creation of, listen, we've got to bring this back down because we don't like what these flow sheets look like moving forward in terms of – skyrocketing salaries?
1: Um, they they always did cry poor. And, yeah. you know, so they would come to the table going, we need this salary cap. You know, the Expos are going to go under. I think uh, they, they talked about the Royals going under. There was a couple of the teams that they would always threaten or, or use as teams that weren't going to make it. So we we're like, okay, you have our attention what's your proposal? It's always a salary cap, it's always lower than, than you know where everybody's at anyway. And then we go to the table and we go, okay, well show us your books so that we can see exactly what's going on. And never one time has there in the base, in the history of baseball has the players union seen an owner's financial books. Yeah. So if you're not gonna you know show us exactly the situation that you're going through and here's you know here's your finances here's everything you're not going to show it to us then how are we going to sit here and go okay yeah we believe you we'll give in and so that was always the start stop of every one of the conversations all right we hear you show us your books and let's let's have a conversation no we can't do that all right well we're done talking yeah and so start stop every single time and it was you know and so they'd go into they played into the press and we'd be like all right well just show us your books and we'd love to you know keep this game alive we love this game love to do anything we can to help um just show us the books and let's have a conversation and that ends the conversation every single time
0: so with bud selig like how did you view him in the sense that he was I think at that time still principal owner of the Brewers. Like, how how is that not just a massive conflict of interest in what he was doing, or is that did that lend into why there was no trust there? And then, if so, how did he manage to hang on to that job for so many years afterward?
1: Um, well, he ended up—I don't know what year it was—ended up uh, giving the uh, giving the team, seeding the team to his daughter. And so he stepped down as principal owner, obviously still had a piece of the team, but it was no longer um, active. So he he was able to kind of get by with it that way. You know, nobody on uh, the union side, the player side really trusted him, which obviously he's one of the owners, one of the, you know, 26, 28, 30 owners. So there wasn't a whole lot of trust for him as a commissioner. But we all did understand the commissioner was paid by the owner, so he was doing their bidding. It was just you hope that he was doing the best for baseball as a whole. I don't know how long he ended up lasting after that, but um you know, I mean, I, I think the way he handled some of the things wasn't the best.
0: So so they wanted the salary cap, which I guess it's still an argument that kind of resonates today in the idea that it can keep teams more even. But it, what it ignores is you know, growing revenues and players being entitled to that certain percentage of those revenues. Um, I, I just don't think it needs to be capped in the sense that the game, when healthy, should re- reinvest that money in those players but too, i guess what i've never understood about the salary cap cap argument is you know you're you're still not going to make places that are undesirable to play more desirable and you're you're you know we have capped sports even in a soft, soft cap like the nba where there's super teams uh i just i don't think the cap really fulfills the need that maybe the casual fan thinks it does in terms of making things fair because um, really, all it does is just limit how much guys can make. It doesn't necessarily mean they're all going to want to go play um, in Detroit or in, you know, Kansas City in the middle of a sweltering summer when the team's twenty games under five hundred. If they have the choice.
1: No, and that's exactly it. it. It's more about it's more about uh, the owners wanted a salary cap so that the players' union would cap their spending. Yep. That was it. It wasn't. It was in no way to make the game fair for the Royals and the Expos and the Marlins or whoever, obviously the Marlins weren't around, but it was, it was strictly for them to cap their spending. And it was nothing to do with an equal playing
0: field. I mean, when they forced Faye Vincent to resign in September of 92, that's a pretty good indication that things are going to get worse before they get better. Right.
1: Well, the, the there's uh, the players union does all the bidding through the players. So they go out and they make the deal with tops and all the poster companies and every piece of likeness of image throughout goes into the players union fund. And then at the end of the year or the beginning of the next year, whatever, I, I don't recall exactly when it was, but in a healthy situation, we would get, you know, a disbursement of some of the funds. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the union starts recognizing that it's going to be a a, a testy situation coming up for the next negotiation, all those funds stop. And so probably before Vincent got fired, you know, it might have been '91. I, I think that, um, you know, I was, I was there for the, the short lockage in 1990, mm-hmm. you know, all that we, we weren't getting any of those funds dispersed. And then as soon as the, you know, we come back to play in 95, there's a decent disbursement of, you know, the, the royalties from everything that the union had negotiated. So I knew they knew. We had meetings every spring training with, "Here's a situation in '91, here it is in '92, '93." All the players knew that it was it was going to be ugly.
0: Yeah.
1: You just hope that you just hope that uh, you know we had done a good job of really not giving up our rights, and by that I mean, is you know the salary cap. And so we had done a really good job of not losing any of these fights, but the owners would always come in wanting just a truckload of stuff for us to give in. And we're just, you know, I mean, for the most part, 94, I was just going, why can't we just keep the game the way it is? Yeah. You guys got caught colluding and, and it actually did affect me because it affected free agent salaries, which, you know, it went down the list. Mm-hmm of where guys were getting squeezed. And so if, uh, you know, third-year guy is – third or fourth-year guy is unable to get into arbitration and he gets squeezed a little bit, well, that affects me because I'm using him to – as my number to negotiate.
0: Trickle down it. So,
1: yeah. And so, I mean, I had – might have been 91, 92 – 90, 91, 92, something like that, where I had a little bit of, you know, my agents went through and found, you know, found a little bit of collusion on other teams that affected me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it trickled down. And But like I said, it, it, we knew something was coming and the, the funds had quit coming from being dispersed from the union because it's, it's going to be a holdout. And if they need to pay some people's bills and pay, you know, help, help guys out during the strike, then that's what the funds were there for.
0: I I have to applaud you guys holding strong to your your you know banding together because sometimes those you know CBA and other sort of union negotiations can be difficult because above all in a major league career because of how short it can be you really do have to look out for um you know yourself in the sense that you don't know when your last day in the big leagues is going to come and so in some respects that's why too some people wonder if maybe the the MLB union doesn't look out too much for minor leaguers because they have to just keep the eye on there right now, as opposed to the future of the game. I think, so I think it's good that you guys banded together. And I think it's good that you guys, um, you know, kept that together long enough to, to get the whatever concessions you needed to at least get back on the field.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, they ended up coming off the salary cap and, and uh, I, I don't think we, I don't think we benefited or gained on anything other than staying together and, and, and almost, you know, doing the same deal that we went to the table with three years or four years before. in, in 1990, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't, I, I don't think we got, I don't think we got anything. I mean, 1990, I think the only, the only difference I remember in 1989 and 90 was that I didn't have to have a roommate anymore. <laughs> you know in 1990 all of a sudden everybody had single rooms and that was part of the negotiation but it was like you, you, you go through and there really isn't a whole bunch that the, the union has gained it's more about just keeping the status quo and and that's all we were saying was look dude, this spin it around we'll resign the same deal that we had from the last one Looks and um anyway so yeah no we we did stay together and then for the listeners that weren't around don't remember uh the nfl went on strike in 87 and a lot not a lot five or six huge names crossed the picket line and the whole strike just fell apart for the uh for the players union on that aspect so if you have questions on that one, go look it up because that was that was a pretty big deal and it was you know obviously remembered by a lot of our union guys and we're not doing that so <laughs> go ahead Brandon what do you got?
0: Well you spent the bulk of that season I'm sure looking up at the expos in the standings and you guys played in the same division I have to ask you um, you know that's the season one of the seasons I look back on with Larry Walker that tell me he's a Hall of Famer even though he played in Colorado. Because he was just a monster even in Montreal. He was going to be a great player even before. I know guys like Dante Bichette and uh, Andre Scalaraga and uh, Vinny Castillo, maybe even Charlie Hayes kind of blew up when they went to Colorado, but Larry Walker was going to be a stud. But when you think about that 1994 Expos team, um, you know, what do you think about, what do you remember from that season?
1: I don't remember really playing them. I remember we were chasing them the whole time, and I was kind of shocked because the the Braves were
0: the, uh, you know,
1: preeminent uh, East team. And, you know, I'm finally getting the chance to play with Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin, Dave Justice, Fred McGriff. I mean, you know, we we had a pretty solid team. But that was, you know, the emergence of John Wetland, Marquise Grissom, Larry Walker was, you know, a rock star. It was it was a fun you know, they had Ken Hill, so I think, you know, going into ninety five they had to sell most of those guys, which was mm-hmm. tragic. Maybe but Pedro um Martinez. maybe Pedro Martinez. Yeah, he was kinda good. Yeah, um they were, I mean they they were really good. It was it was um, wasn't the easiest place to play and, and so that's about it. I, I don't really, you know, run through and remember yeah. It was, such a, it was such a bad year for me that I wasn't I wasn't in very many relevant games. So <laughs>
0: what uh what do you remember about the AL West race if you can call it that? <laughs> um Texas was leading when everything stopped 10 games under 500. The NL West wasn't that much better, 5 games under for the Giants and the Dodgers were the only team in either West division above 500 and there were two games above. Um was that just a factor of the season kind of not shaking out? And giving them time to kind of figure things out through 162 games that there was through, you know, 114, 113 as it was, or you know, was there something weird in the water in '94 when it comes to out west?
1: There must have been. I I don't really, you know, I I remember, I remember the '95. I thought it was the Angels folding the the tent up up ten games. I guess about you know, middle of August and losing that lead of an epic, epic proportions. I don't, uh, I really yeah. don't have a, a recollection to speak of on, on Texas being that far under and, and why the central or the West were, was that weak for that year. Cause it's just not, a, it's not a normal, not a normal situation.
0: Yeah. It, you know, it's the same kind of deal with the Astros making the playoffs last year under 500 and then beating the twins, which, we all know about how the Twins play in the postseason right now, but uh, yeah, bit of a bit of a struggle there. <laughs> it's just it, it's so funny though when when circumstances are not as they usually are and seasons don't play out the way we've grown accustomed to them. Um, the oddities of the game are magnified, I think is is fair to say. Um, how how do you remember Donald Fear? Uh, he's working with the NHL now, but I mean. You guys, for as little trust as you had in Bud Seelig, was it the exact opposite with fear, as he was working on uh, in your best interests and on your behalf?
1: Yeah, no, he was. Uh,
0: look like a he bulldog. was solid. He was a bulldog for you guys. He was.
1: He was a bulldog, and he made you know, made the calls and made the decisions that that ended up being you know right on for what we needed. I just look at you know, you looked at the guys that were a little bit older than me, maybe that were. Part of the part of the uh, leadership, you know, Phil Bradley was amazing, intelligent. He's still working with the union. Mm-hmm. You know, Tom and We had we had so many guys that were around that um, kind of had been through it. We got a little taste of it in, in 1990 when the owners locked us out of spring training, and it just kind of was what it was. You just knew something was coming and you knew you had to stay together. And, and uh, if you needed help or you needed to talk about it, there's plenty of guys that, that were there to help. So Don fear was, yeah, he was, he was awesome. uh, Extremely intelligent. And he was a bulldog and uh, just made, made the right decisions, I guess, in essence is about all I can say that, you know, he did, he did it right.
0: So, The strike brought some untimely ends to careers, (laughs) too. You know, Bob Welch had 70 years, so he probably wasn't going to play much longer. But there were guys like Kent Herbeck, who was coming up to the end, Tom Brunansky, Bo Jackson, obviously a guy very familiar to you. Um, Goose Gossage had been around for a long time, but uh, Don Mattingly missed out on probably his best chance of making the postseason. It, to me, that's something that maybe we don't think about as much. Um, Jack Morris, too, is another one whose career kind of came to an, uh, an abrupt, kind of strange end. Um, uh, Rick Sutcliffe, another I'm kind of running down the list here. Do you, do you have any sort of recollection of kind of looking back on that and being like, oh, yeah, they didn't really get any kind of send-off or any kind of, um, you know, thanks for everything, thanks for the memories. It was just kind of like, all right, you're done.
1: Yeah, I mean that would be that would be the one aspect where you look at and go, okay, there are some guys that aren't going to play baseball again, and I I hadn't really thought of it. I hadn't. I guess when you're in the middle of the career, you don't think about the aspects of, you know, if we don't come back, guys guys are going to be done playing, you know. And you got Don, Don Mattingly, Gossage, Herbeck, Brunansky, all great players that, you know, laid an aspect, Bob Welch that had an aspect of the game that, you know, they, they affected people, they affected the way it was played. And I never really sat back and went, That's just a really, you know, hard way to end. It wasn't wasn't on anybody's terms other than the union and, and the ownership. And so nobody. there's only what one percent, if that, get to end a career the way they want to end it, Mm -hmm. walk away and call a retirement. And most everybody's career ends one day somewhere, and you don't know when it's going to be or where it's going to be. And mine was in Anaheim and threw an inning, and that was the last game that I played. So you just don't know when, where. And I think it's, yeah, you can wax poetic about, you know, their careers ending you know, at at that time, but they're going to end sometime, you know? Right.
0: At what point did you know that 1995 starting on time was in jeopardy?
1: Oh man, that was another one where it's just, okay, let's get this done. Let's go. Come on. We already, we already lost, already lost the world series. We're getting ready to lose a whole big fan base. And that was, you know, we talked about it in, in one of the other podcasts about the uh, the 95 Buffalo Bisons. Right. And so Maybe the best Triple H that was, time. yeah, that was my, that was my hopefulness. I think that was a lot of people's hopefulness was that the season's going to start on time and I need to get signed somewhere before this glut of, man, 900 and some free agents hit the market. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be in line to, to be anybody's top 10 favorite. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's why you saw a lot of the guys signing. And somebody got some kickback from some guys that um, were going to be on major league rosters, got some kickback about me signing and, and, you know, and some other guys signing and going to spring training when everybody else was locked out. And it wasn't that we were crossing the picket line. It was just minor league baseball was still going on. Mm -hmm. And I was a minor leaguer. I was, you know, I signed a minor league deal. It made me a minor league baseball player. And so, yeah, you can kick me and and say I should have held out. But that goes to, you know, sometimes you got to take care of yourself. And I knew that it was going to end at some point. There's going to be a thousand big league free agents all running to get signed somewhere. And, and I was not going to be a priority. So you got to get to going.
0: A pretty good trio of hitters signed in Japan. Um, Kevin Mitchell and Julio Franco. Yeah. Played, he played well, even longer than you did. <laughs> and, uh, and Shane <laughs> Mack. What what went into that? Was that part of that glut of free agents? Maybe more on the big league side, but knowing, listen, we got to do something to stay relevant here. Um, you know, Franco obviously came back and played a whole bunch. That was, in a lot of ways, the end of Shane Mack's effective big league career he came back for a little while i think with oakland but didn't hang on all that long um and you know i think mitchell put up big numbers over there too but it's uh that's a different angle too what was that um something guys talked about as far as oh they're going to japan when they can still clearly hack it here because i think they all hit well in excess of 300 that season
1: you know what i mean to get over japan they can only take two americans or two non-Japanese players mm-hmm. per their, per their big league roster. And I think they get one, maybe two minor league Americans or foreign players. So it's not a, it's not a big window of opportunity. And, and it's a lot like me, you know, jumping and, and, and trying to get some place to play, but they were coming off better seasons and obviously got paid a lot better than I did being in Buffalo. Yeah. So, you know, they had the aspect and if you know, you don't have families that or your family doesn't mind picking up and going to Japan for a year, it's, it's not a bad call, but it's, it's the same thing as, you know, what all the Buffalo Bisons guys did, which is just jump the gun and you know, the strike's going to end at some point and I got to be somewhere. So Same thing, yeah. I didn't realize that uh, all those guys had gone over there. I think Franco was about the only one that returned,
0: Mm -hmm. huh? Yeah, that's uh, kind of wild.
1: So, all right, I'm I'm thinking about it now. Don't forget to uh, follow up to do our questions.
0: Yeah, so uh, there you go. Did did it ever feel like there was a a thought of Cal? crossing the picket line to keep his streak alive i know he, i know based on the way you've described him that um that probably wasn't the case but um you know i had all these baseball magazines as a kid and so they talked about it was like a, a player's poll would you hold it against him if he crossed the picket line to maintain the streak and that was kind of when the replacement players were going on uh, was that was that a topic of discussion obviously you weren't with baltimore anymore that part of your career had sailed but um, was there any discussion around that, or was that just kind of an afterthought?
1: That was really an afterthought. I don't, I don't think he would have ever done it. Um, I, I seem to remember something about once we got into, you know, once we got into 1995, that any replacement games would be stricken from the record. Okay. So they did try. You know, I, I think the union was was going through the process of you know, we got your back on this, and if they do play a game or two games, they'll be wiped out and, you know, make sure it has never actually been played. Okay, With, nice. It's at least a thought. I don't I, – I I would be about 99.999% sure that Ripken wouldn't cross to do that. I don't – see he's not that type of guy.
0: That's that's kind of what I had gathered based on, on how you described him. Um Just a couple more before we get into the questions. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr., was playing at a pace for uh, 58 home runs. So there would have been a chance he could have challenged the mark that existed at that time of 61. Matt Williams over on the national League side was setting things ablaze with 43 home runs through 112 games, which based on my back of the napkin math says he would have been probably right around or above 61 on a pace. Um, That home run race that we lost seems to have been picked up by the 1998 home run race that you earlier said kind of brought fans back have you ever thought of that parallel and, and what it kind of felt like to be cheated out of that home run race that we would have gotten to see in 1994
1: i um you know I, I don't i didn't realize that griffey was was putting up those numbers i didn't know maddie was and uh
0: well that comes yeah back that, to, that was that was
1: yeah and there there's just aspects of of life that you look at, and, and most everybody gives me, the, you know, the Expos would have went to the playoffs, and, and uh, you know, for me, it would have been Matt Williams was chasing the home run record. So, yeah, there's a couple of those aspects. It would have been a lot of fun, but I think it, I, it was effectively replaced. You know, Sosa, sosie McGuire equals Matt Williams and, and Ken Griffey Jr. Um, man, it, was, it was fun. 98 was Fun to be anything but a pitcher.
0: Well, and I suppose the race for home runs was a little different when they were playing in the same division, as opposed to pre-interleague. Griffey and 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 um, Matt Williams, there's no chance they're going to play unless it's the World Series. So it's a different dynamic. '98 also was the interleague era, so it would have been again a little bit different. But um, the the numbers you see from that season are just astonishing. Is there any in your mind thought that those baseballs could have been different. I mean, we've seen it in different seasons, but I mean, two, I see three guys who slugged 700. I see Frank Thomas with an on base of 487. I mean, that's just astonishing numbers. (laughs) Um, You know, it it could be, again, things not correcting in 162 games, but part of me kind of wonders. I'm looking at the top of these leaderboards like, oh, this is uh, maybe a little suspicious.
1: I, you know, I don't know. I they they say that the owners do that and they, they tighten up the baseballs and I've had I've had some people that I trust quite a bit handed me a baseball last year and it's a lot different than it had been. It was the, the seams were much tighter to the body of the ball, you know, in the old days and, and I'm not saying I'm not saying I, I, I did it to you know To cheat. I just did it because you're sitting in a bullpen and you have a baseball and there's nothing else to do but to dig at the seams. Mm -hmm. And so you can dig it, you can dig at the seams a little bit to try to, you know, push them up and raise them so you get a little bit something more to pull on. And I spent five or 10 minutes on one of these new baseballs from last year I, I could I couldn't get the seam to budge. So I don't think uh, they're better made than they were. I think that they've tightened them down quite a bit and, and home runs, home runs sell, you know, everybody wants to see the long ball or was that uh great Braves commercial chicks dig the long ball. So yes, they do. it, uh, it, it, it sells. Everybody wants to see offense. And uh, so if you can tighten the baseballs up and make them a little bit harder and give up more home runs, then that's what we got. I just, I just find it hard to, you know, go back to those times and have seen anything different. You know, when uh-huh. I'm throwing the baseball in 70 games a year, right. you would recognize the difference in baseball year to year, and there never really was that.
0: So before we bring things full circle here, we have Symbol <laughs> sponsoring this last segment Symbol is the stock market for sports that allows you to trade sports teams like stocks and earn cash payouts when your team wins. So Symbol has blended sports and the stock market to offer you a new way to invest in and profit off your favorite teams without high fees or high losses of gambling. Use your sports knowledge to buy low, sell high, and earn cash payouts when your teams win. So you can join the 7,000-plus early adopters who have started to invest in their favorite teams Visit www.symbol.app, a p p, create a free account, and when you deposit, use the promo code BENDER for one free week of Symbol Gold. Again, that's Symbol.app, promo code BENDER for one free week of Symbol Gold, and you can start investing in your favorite teams. So, um, Greg, how do you think we came up with that, that uh, coupon code? That's, uh, that was pretty creative.
1: That was very creative. Nice <laughs> job by you.
0: Yeah. So but
1: Obviously, I'm not uh, not that smart.
0: Oh, no, nice was, job. We had to, we had to keep it relevant to the show. Um so questions. Josiah Walder wants to know what do you think of the commissioner at the time or what did you? Now, we did spend the last hour talking about that, but I think it's also worth noting that there wasn't a formal commissioner and and so it's just it's still so, so strange to me that this important of a negotiation took place without a formalized commissioner in place.
1: Um, I, I I was not a fan of Bud Selig. He had did not have my um the players union players best interests at heart. It was all about the ownership and you did you recognized that who you know who was paying the commissioner. You really did. But you still had hope that you know Fay Vincent was a, a pretty good baseball guy, and Bart Giamatti was a good baseball guy, so you had you had some context of some good baseball people that were running it that you know were fair, and then Sealy took over, and it was just like that 's not fair we 're not going to have we're not going to have a good negotiation, and we knew it
0: did you get the sense that he could be replaced relatively quickly after the strike was? Um resolved if things didn't go
1: the way that he wanted to yeah but he had a couple he had a couple of the big owners on his side and so you you kind of knew and and i'm not going to delve into who what where but you kind of knew that you know a couple of the big dog owners had his back and it was going to have to go substantially wrong for him to be out
0: Cornell fan wants to know, could it have been averted? And I'm going to kind of manipulate that a little bit. in your best estimation, what do you think would have been the easiest slash most effective way to avert what happened? I mean, open up the books probably, right? Yeah. I mean, if they, if they had ever opened up the books and
1: said, we seriously are in financial peril. And we're going to lose the Expos and we might lose the Royals. And I'm just giving you examples of teams. If they would have said that and really had come to the table with, here is our books, our real books. And here's the losses that we're sustaining with these salaries. And then we would have said, okay, what can we do? And if it's a one year, and I think that was somewhat discussed was, okay, well, let's, Well, the numbers are down in 95, let's, you know, we'll give you some, you know, some leeway on some things. And um, it just, there was such a lack of trust after the collusion. You know, they had had decided to try to, to make their money and save their money by colluding together against free agents. And, you know, there were guys that were free agents out there that was like, they're getting no offers. I mean, it was just, so poorly done to collude that it was so obvious, and um so we just lost all trust in going, "Okay, you know what we feel for you guys we 'll give you this we they They lost all our trust, so we couldn't we couldn't even think that we would give them something for you know the end of ninety four and go through ninety five while the game gets back on its feet, and then in ninety six they're going to negotiate in good faith, we knew that they wouldn't so it became a hard – it became the hard scape of going, to, if we don't walk out when we're doing this, then we lose all credibility and, and we're going to lose this fight. So that's what it came down to. And I, I, like I said, I hated
0: it. Yeah. We all hated it. So you guys were basically – I guys, don't know. You can't even collude well.
1: No, they got busted. You know, they got busted <laughs> by the courts for colluding. So yeah. it, it was just – you know, I mean, it was like, come on. It was really obvious when guys, like, have a great year in 91 or 90 and, and then all of a sudden a free agents and nobody makes a bid. Like, come on. You're like, yeah, yeah, no, come on. So that was uh, where that was at.
0: Ali Siddiqui says the Expos were the most affected. Um, that's, an, that's his opinion. I would say, yeah, I don't think it's that shocking or that much of a, a hot take to say that, yeah, I mean – what we know of how things went for the next nearly a decade before they moved to Washington. Um, but again, too, I mean, does winning a World Series save that franchise? I, I don't really know that I trust Jeffrey Lurie to act in good faith either. So um, I think they were affected. I think the season affected them a lot, but I don't know if their trajectory as a franchise was affected that much.
1: Uh, that's the theory. It was that it did, but I don't know. if, You know, like you said, the world championship would would affect them staying and Jeffrey Lurie leaving them there. I I, I have a hard time thinking it would. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was a hard place to play in Olympic Stadium. There's games that we would play up there, and there's two thousand people right. in a eighty five thousand person stadium. It's just depressing. That's a camera. So.
0: I just average. don't think they, they weren't going to, yeah,
1: they weren't going to draw fans and and the world championship might bring them some fans for a year, but I just didn't see it continuing.
0: Dan Hartson wants to know how many homers does a prime Griffey hit that season. Granted you were more entrenched in the season that Matt Williams was having in your opinion. I'll, I'll change it up just a little bit. I hope Dan doesn't mind. Do you think either of those guys break the record if that season's played to its uh, intended finality?
1: I don't know. I mean, I think they both got a shot. Griffey's got, Griffey's got a little bit more to do, but, you know, Maddie was, Maddie was swinging about as good as anybody. I think they got a shot. It wasn't, you know, the baseballs weren't juiced. It wasn't like it was last year or two years ago where everybody's hitting home runs. But I wouldn't say that both of those guys, you know, when, in the middle of their career, in the middle of their career, I, I was saying both of them were Hall of famers. And obviously Griffey got there. Maddie has not, but you know they both had great careers, and it wouldn't have shocked me to see them making the run. I think you know more of a shock for me was Sosa. Yeah. In the in the grand scheme of somebody making a run at Marath.
0: Yeah, you, you know, not a lot of plate discipline, kind of a free swinger, but with obvious physical gifts. Um, that's that's a good point. Max Riper wants to know, and I we pretty much covered this already. Um, would replacement player stats be accepted today? And you said they would have been stricken from the record and would have been just. A- well, we were trying. Okay.
1: We were, we were trying to get every if if they played one or two games. It was on the table that every every replacement game was to be stricken. Um, you know, those guys. I'll just kind of brief pathway. Those guys were not very popular. And um, I'm sure not. I I don't know how, I think somebody posted an article or did something, so there was, they were recognized in the clubhouses, and they weren't very popular at all, and I ended up playing with a couple of them the next year in 95, and, and a couple more in 98 with Arizona, I mean, nice guys, and they were just trying to take care of their families, and maybe... 10 years pass and you kind of go, yeah, I get it. You got to take care of yourself and cross the line and get your, get your avenue of opportunity. But they were, uh, man, they were pariahs in the clubhouse for a little while.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Steven Risotto wants to know, did the replacement players rise the spike of jealousy or were they viewed as jokes from the beginning? Now what I think I'm talking about here is, and you kind of touched on it, um, that, you guys never had viewed that as any sort of real threat, like, oh, yeah, they're really going to do this, and it's really going to work, right?
1: Oh, no. We knew it wasn't going to – we knew that the baseball was going to be bad. Yeah. Um, not bad. Not not to the level – you know, if the, the concept would be just go watch the movie Replacements with Keanu Reeves and go, okay, yeah, that would have been the difference between a real NFL team and the Replacements, which – you know, there were some minor league guys, and there was a couple guys that were out of the game, and then there was, you know, de- there's some good baseball players. It just at the level wasn't going to be um, wasn't going to be a whole lot of fun to watch for everybody for 162 games.
0: Mike D. So, well, Mike DiGiovanna, who um, is an LA Times staff writer, wrote a pretty good article about it back in 2019, uh, August 12th, incidentally enough, so the 25th anniversary of um, the strike I would say check that out but yeah he says that uh, the left-hander who works in the car detail and business zipped a fastball into the mitt of the Home Depot department manager and with that Angels 1995 spring training was in full swing that's a pretty good sentence
1: <laughs> pretty hilarious sentence there it is yeah that, that's pretty good yeah now I, I got to see a little bit of it see you know the the replacements were working at the big field in winter haven florida for for cleveland well the minor league guys were in the minor league clubhouses across the street and so i'd get to see a little bit of them playing catch and and um they wouldn't I, I don't think we would have had a whole lot of any of them on our triple a bison's team yeah.
0: so yeah well you guys were stacked but that's a uh... That's a fair assessment. It reminds me of, um, and I'm not sure if you remember this commercial, but Cal Ripken Jr. did a commercial for, I think, Fram car auto filters, and his filter faltered, which, no pun intended, um, and he missed a game, and some guy named Dan Bigelow had to step in for him to break the streak, and this Dan Bigelow was kind of a paunchy big guy, and uh, I don't know. It just made me think of the replacement players in that same respect. It was just it was not going to work in any way, shape, or form.
1: Yeah, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. You know, like I said, I I, I played with a couple of them that ended up staying in the big leagues. And you know, good for em good for them. They took their shot and and uh, were able to make something of it. But it wasn't. It wasn't a very pretty game when I got to see a little bit of it in uh, in Winter Haven, Florida. Uh,
0: ben Chase, we just got a couple left here. Ben Chase says he doubts that Jeff Bagwell gets the triple crown, but could have gone 350 plus average, 50 plus homers. Lots of RBIs and, you know, 25-30 steals. Um, Is that season the one that maybe gets underrated because he was – well, let's see, Houston at the time would have been in the NL. So he was four homers behind Williams in that home run race. So he wasn't getting that kind of attention. But he still won the MVP. Um, So as as hard as it is to say an MVP is underrated – do we still, do you think, some kind of sometimes kind of sleep on Bagwell's season? Again, too, he did get hit on the wrist by a pitch and would have probably missed most of, if not the rest of the season. But um, I feel like we do maybe sleep a little bit on Jeff Bagwell's 1994.
1: Oh, he was unbelievable. And, and yes, he, he was, you know, he would not have won the MVP had uh, the season continued to October 1st. He broke his wrist. He was done. And so um, – his season was unbelievable. He was – I got to play with him in 96. He was he's a, a rare breed of average power, you know, kind of goes with the Frank Thomas, you know, had that little run of ultra-athletic first basemans mm-hmm. that uh, that hit for average, hit for high average, got on base and had major power, Bagwell, Frank Thomas,
0: great players. The last one we have, Michael Hortz wants to know, and I'm not sure how you'll feel about this one. Uh, was it true, in an attempt to regain interest after the strike, Bud Selig told George Steinbrenner to win at all costs. Steinbrenner does that, corners interest in Tampa, and builds a spring training facility in what would have been perfect for MLB in a location. Uh, to me, that's a lot of, uh, not tinfoil hat, but you know maybe some of it adds up. I'm just curious, your view on the inside as far as um, you know maybe what had happened under the table.
1: Remember I mean, with I mean, we're talking about Seeley telling Steinbrenner to win at all costs, so the Yankees become, you know, ends up being the, the team of the decade. Right. And then he's able to go down and and interesting, interesting theory. I hadn't, I hadn't heard that. Um. You know, you usually get privy to some sort of information and true or false, one way or the other. I hadn't heard that one, but you know, the Yankees. Thankfully, we were not real relevant for the beginning of my career.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, became extremely relevant 95, 6, 7, 8, 9 for the rest of the decade. So I don't know. I wouldn't be shocked, but it wasn't, you know, they had a whole bunch of homegrown guys.
0: Yeah, they weren't G-R, going out and. and
1: yeah, yeah, they weren't going out and getting. You know, a lot of high-priced guys. I mean, you can probably say Paul O'Neill. You can say they got Tino Martinez. Yeah, well, then they went out and bought Wetland. Um, it's not Interesting theory. Yeah, it's something. Yeah.
0: I don't know if I buy it. Yeah, no,
1: it's there. But they had a bunch of, you know, they had a bunch of homegrown guys. You no, know, Bernie Williams, Gerald Williams, uh Jeter. Mariano Rivera, Posada, you know, all those guys are homegrown, and then you throw in Not some high, you know, high-priced guys. Yeah, interesting.
0: interesting. Interesting theory. All right, well, reminder, Symbol.app, uh, Symbol.app, symbol. App, promo code BENDER, will get you one free week of Symbol Gold. It's basically stock market for sports. Recommended reading and or watching on YouTube. It's 1993-Frontline, The Trouble with Baseball. Carlton Fisk is featured, talks about his dealings with Jerry Reinsdorf. Definitely pertinent to what we're talking about here. Also, MLB 1994 strike colon replacement players provided comic relief, farcical baseball from Mike DiGiovanna back in 2019. I would say people should definitely check those out. Greg, I think there's a chance we might have to have a follow-up episode if there's meat on the bone that people want to hear from. So we'll uh, we'll consider that or maybe q and A Q&A next week. How does that sound? That sounds great. Yeah. So, uh, again, thank you to everyone listening, everybody that subscribes on Patreon. Thanks to Hinterland Coffee, Humility Chains, three-star sports cards. Again, give us a five-star review on iTunes. And, again, thank you so much for listening to that 90s baseball pod powered by Access Twins. See you next week.